this month on Security Management Highlights. Everybody from the CEO down must believe in uh, customer service goals and initiatives. James Jess Stewart, CPP, who authored this month's cover story, talks to us about the importance of hospitality training for security guards and how managers can instill these skills in their employees. You may have recently received a new debit or credit card with a chip in it, but just how is the United States doing in terms of implementing this new technology? Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates stops by to talk more about how the EMV technology rollout is faring for merchants. Then, we look at terrorism and other crime. It's within the community that they have to be addressed, and our role is to be that focal point for that exchange. Mike Senna, president of the National Fusion Center Association, tells us more about the efforts of these innovative centers across the United States working to increase information sharing. Plus, our members spotlight this month on Kevin Doss, CPP, who is CEO of Level 4 Security. He talks to us more about active shooter training for schools and the workplace. I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Security guards are often the first point of contact a visitor has with a facility or organization. James Jess Stewart, CPP, is Director of Operations and Human Resources for the Nevada Museum of Art in Reno. He stopped by to tell us more about his cover story on having a more hospitality-focused security program. Jess, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You write that support is one of the most crucial elements to establishing a customer service-focused security department. Can you explain what that support might look like and why it's important? When you have a customer service element or you're bringing a customer service element into your security department, the only really way for it to be successful is to not just have it basically or simply supported by a few managers. It has to be fully supported and supported from the top. Everybody from the CEO down must believe in the customer service goals and initiatives, and then they have to create and maintain an environment that helps an employee stick to those guidelines. And managers support their employees by giving them training, then they need to back up that training by helping an employee when they run into a difficult customer service interaction. And managers have to also go through the training themselves to ensure that they have the necessary knowledge to help build their security officer employee skills. Specific professional customer service training is another key piece of the puzzle. Tell us more about that. Well, security managers have a lot of expertise in a bunch of different areas, including, of course, procedures and personnel, and they may have many years of customer service experience as well. But these managers, although they do a great job of training their own security officers in customer service from their own knowledge, we have to be realistic about the fact that our own customer service knowledge, as good as it might be, won't be as effective as it would be if a person whose profession is training others comes in and gives specific customer service training and techniques to your employees. If we start a security officer down the road of training for their job and train them initially and internally in customer service, that's good. And like I said just a minute ago, you know, these security managers can have great customer service knowledge already, but to truly have a superior customer service focus in your security program, you have to give your officers specific professional customer service training from the outside. One of the big things that security professionals need to do and their supervisors that work for them is to go out and supervise, go out and manage, go out and observe. As their title states, you have to go manage. And as we stated in the beginning, all levels of management need to be trained in that specific uh, customer service uh, training 
so that they can maintain that customer service environment. And then when managers and supervisors are going around their business or their establishment doing their jobs, they need to make sure that they're taking the time to observe their employees interacting with the public. And then they need to encourage their employees who are showing great customer service skills and then help those others who may need additional training or need some guidance on improving their customer service techniques. Observing and improving is While you can have the best trained security workforce in history, it all comes down to the department actually being able to deliver on those hospitality skills. How can managers ensure implementation of customer service among their ranks? Well, ideally, you know, if you hire a new employee, that is uh, uh, many times easier when you bring on a new employee and they're kind of fresh and you can teach them these security skills and customer service skills. Sometimes the harder part is when you have an existing employee or you have somebody who's been in the security field for a long time and you're trying to have them go into more of a customer service aspect rather than the deterrent security, a person standing there with their arms crossed, being kind of curt with the public, um, kind of daring you to cross that line or something to that nature. That can be a little bit challenging for security managers when they're trying to get that security officer to change from that curt type of interaction with the public and get them to go more into that customer service aspect. At the Nevada Museum of Art, we brought a customer service focus into our security department. And for the most part, the security officers were really excited about that. They really wanted to interact with the public in a positive way, as well as doing their other duties and responsibilities of keeping the museum safe and secure. And for the most part, like I said, they all embraced it. They went through the training. They executed that training really almost flawlessly. I think that with with any organization, when you do that, you are going to have possibly the few who may resist the training. And with those, it's important for security managers to be patient with those officers and to try and get compliance in the customer service aspect with explaining to them why it's important. One of the things that I used with my security officers here at the Nevada Museum of Art was that it costs five times more to get a new customer than to keep an existing customer. And when that's true, we're not doing our job by supporting the museum. And of course, this is universal. It can be supporting whatever business you're at. We're not doing our job as a security department if we're not helping our company keep those customers. Finally, you write that the customer service program should complement security procedures, not detract from them. What can be done to ensure such balance in the program? When security managers are uh, writing and instituting their safety and security procedures, they really need to keep customer service in mind to make sure that the two are consistently working with each other. As an example, procedures should state that officers, again, just an example, that a procedure could state that an officer or officers, while they're patrolling in areas looking for safety and security issues, that officer should also make eye contact with visitors. And not only just making eye contact, but having a pleasant look on their face. And 
if at all possible, giving them a greeting, just a good morning or good afternoon. At the Nevada Museum of Art, and I think, again, this is universal, that initiating contacts with visitors, it creates a pleasant atmosphere, but can also be an excellent tool for officers in the way that in giving that greeting and having just, even if it's a short interaction with a uh, customer or visitor, if the visitor reacts oddly to it, that can cue the officer that there may be something going on with this person and we may need to pay a little bit extra attention to this visitor or this group of visitors. They may also uh, need to report it to their supervisor or to their security office that there may be something wrong just from that initial interaction with somebody. Again, this is not 100%, but it can just cue the officer that something may be wrong. Also, there can be an aspect of teamwork in your procedures to ensure that the security issues are being dealt with while customer service is occurring at the same time. Another example, if an officer is involved with a customer service interaction, and that interaction is taking more than a few seconds. Again, giving the Nevada Museum of Art as an example, if somebody starts asking about a specific painting or a sculpture or something like that, then usually that officer can answer that question and then they move on. But sometimes it can get a little bit deeper than that where they ask how long is this exhibit going to be here and you know, ask more and more questions to where that interaction is taking longer and it's kind of taking that officer away from being able to keep their eye on other safety and security issues that could be happening in their area. So what they can do is, and again, this is where the procedures come into play, that at the Nevada Museum of Art, an officer will quickly transmit a code over their radio, which is almost not noticeable to the visitor. And that code, once it's heard, just lets a supervisor or another nearby security officer know that that security officer is tied up with a visitor. And so they start taking on that officer's duties. And again, it's usually only just for a few more seconds or for a minute. And then the initial officer is then free of that interaction and goes back to their duties. And then everybody else goes back to their duties as well. They need to do all those things at once, and getting the team involved, getting a procedure written so everybody knows what's going on, it keeps the place safe and secure and also helps the officers with making great customer service contacts with their visitors. Thanks so much for stopping by today, Jess. It was absolutely my pleasure. The October 2015 deadline has come and gone for U.S. merchants to roll out the Europay, MasterCard, and Visa technology for payment cards. But it seems not everyone has made it to the finish line on time. Cybersecurity Editor Megan Gates is here to tell us more. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. So please explain for those of us who still don't quite understand the new wave of card technology for payments in the United States and in other countries. Explain it for us. It's EMV technology. What is that? Tell us exactly what it is and why it's more secure than regular payment cards. All right. So EMV technology was made by Europay, MasterCard, and Visa, hence the EMV abbreviation. And instead of your payment info on your credit or debit card being stored on a magnetic stripe, it's stored in a secure microprocessor chip that performs cryptographic processing during a payment transaction. So instead, when you're going to, you know, say buy groceries at the store and you go to the point of sale terminal and you have to quote swipe your card instead of swiping it like you would have done with your card with the magnetic stripe you dip your card where you put it into the machine you leave it there for a few seconds it performs
forms a process. It has sort of this back and forth to make sure that the card is real, that the chip is authentic. And then it will ask you for additional information to finalize the transaction. And that's either a signature or a PIN, usually a four-digit number. And you enter that in, and that's how it processes the transaction. So that's why we hear the term chip and PIN, but you're saying chip and signature is also a possibility. And is that used more in the United States than, than the PIN number? Yeah, chip and pin is widely used pretty much everywhere else. And in some cases in the United States, they're rolling out new cards that are chip and pin, but a majority of them are actually chip and signature, which has had some criticism that they are not as secure because, you know, anyone can really sign for a signature and people don't necessarily pay much attention to that to make sure that it is actually your signature that you're using. Is there a reason why there's a signature instead of a pin? Is that for the vendor? Yeah, and that's actually something I talked with Martin Warwick from FICO about. He's their chief European fraud guy. It was interesting because, you know, widely in Europe and the United Kingdom, they use chip and pin because it's much more secure. There was criticism raised when they went the chip and pin route that maybe they shouldn't use it. People wouldn't remember their pins, you know, and then they wouldn't be able to use their card. He said that has actually not been a problem. People there, he joked with me when we were talking about this on the phone, was saying that, you know, somebody might have had way too much to drink and might not be able to carry on a conversation with you on a Friday night at the pub, but they will remember their pins so they can pay for their drinks. Uh, Unfortunately, in the United States, a majority of card issuers seem to be going the chip and signature route, which, you know, is more secure than the magnetic stripe, but it's not as secure as the chip and pin. And a lot of it is because people are afraid that people won't remember their pins, so therefore they won't use their cards, which, you know, they don't want that to happen. They don't want to lose that revenue of you using their particular card to pay for something. So how come we're not seeing these dip your card terminals in all the stores? I mean, I think I've seen them in some Walmarts, and I know Target was one of the first ones to get them after their big hack. The deadline was supposed to be this October, just last month. So did vendors miss the deadline? What's the deal? They already knew that lots of people were going to miss the deadline. It's a liability shift deadline. So it switches, you know, who's responsible if there's fraud in the transaction. But yeah, by the end of the year, they're saying that 600 million of the 1.1 billion U.S. credit and debit cards in circulation will be EMV enabled cards. But they said only 35 to 50 percent of U.S. merchant locations were EMV enabled by the October deadline. So lots of stores, they might have the new EMV enabled terminals that you could use the card but they haven't turned on the technology yet they haven't done all of the back-end software installation and testing that they might need to do to make sure that it's working properly and then there are also some merchants that just simply haven't switched over yet you know that they're taking that liability risk and sort of waiting to see what happens yeah I've definitely noticed that some customers are having trouble using the machine so is that related to the lack of you know on the back end installing software and stuff it might be well I know personally one of the last times I went to buy groceries my grocery store you know I could use my chip and pin card and I entered it one time it didn't work I entered it again it didn't work and finally the cashier was like okay you're just gonna have to use the magnetic stripe technology because it doesn't seem to be working properly I talked to Randy Vanderhoof the director of the EMV migration forum he's also the executive director of the smart card alliance he said lots of places still might not have terminals installed they might be running testing phases and pilots before rolling it out 
nationwide in their stores. So you might be able to use your chip and pin card at one store in, you know, on the East Coast, but maybe not somewhere in the Midwest. And there's also, you know, problems on the back end with new software because this is a totally new thing for most merchants. They're not, they've been using the same technology for their point of sale terminals for 40 years. So unlike credit card companies and debit card companies that regularly switch out and issue new cards, this is a major, major deal for them to switch over their technology. Thanks so much for stopping by and explaining all this to us, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. In this month's issue, Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa explored national fusion centers and how they work to share intelligence across the government and private sector to prevent attacks. I had a chance to talk to Mike Senna, president of the National Fusion Center Association, about his organization as well as the 78 individual centers across the nation. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for uh, your time today. What is the goal of these individual fusion centers across the nation? The primary goal since September 11th and the uh, foundation of the operations was to be able to improve information sharing across America, both at federal, state, local, tribal, territorial, and private sector critical infrastructure, and be able to create a capability that we hadn't had before to exchange information regarding threats, regarding threats of a terrorism nature and criminal nature, those things that really affect the communities. Because when we look at terrorism and other crime, it's within the communities that they have to be addressed. And our role is to be kind of that focal point for that exchange. The association itself, the National Fusion Center Association, was designed and, and built off of that foundation of what are now 70 fusion centers across America, many of them in states, major urban areas, regional centers across the country. And our goal is, uh, one, to promote that the role of information sharing in America, help improve policies and practices, including protection of privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties, and really expand our capability and our voice to Congress and throughout the country on you know, what we do and why it is so important to support this effort. Each center is a member of the association, and of course there are you know, over 3,000 staff that are assigned to fusion centers across the country, and those association members are the centers themselves, and the people that work in those centers uh, receive the benefits of the membership of each center. It's, it's all voluntary, and we have very aggressive folks out there that participate and really help us out throughout the year in all of our efforts. You know, working with Department of Homeland Security, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and not only our federal law enforcement agencies that we work with, also our other law enforcement associations across America. The other uh, piece of that is that we have other programs and organizations, such as the high-intensity drug trafficking areas and the regional information sharing systems, that are close partners with us, and we work very closely with them on a daily basis. Last year, the NFCA worked with stakeholders to develop the national strategy of the National Network of Fusion Centers. Can you tell me what that is and what its goals are? And how do you plan to measure the success of that strategy, Mike? (laughs) Well, we've got 37 (laughs) initiatives within the strategy. And the primary goals are, of course, how do we serve the public and the nation itself? How do we serve each other as organizations, public safety, law enforcement, fire, all the disciplines that work within the government? How do we share information between fusion centers themselves? And how do we have that greater functionality so that we can prevent the next terrorist act or whatever the major threat our country faces? And how will we measure that? Over the last year, we've actually been developing and building an implementation strategy of how do we make these 37 initiatives reality. So the other piece of this is fusion centers are probably one of the most evaluated programs in government, long-standing relationship with the Department of Homeland Security that has a responsibility as far as that federal law enforcement agency and public safety and 
intelligence agency that has that coordination effort with fusion centers. And over the years, they've developed a number of assessment processes that assesses each center across the country. Now, these initiatives, these strategies that we've, we've been working on will be measured through the metrics that we develop with DHS. If people want to learn more about the uh, National Fusion Center Network, National Fusion Center Association, they can go to nfcausa.org. And within that homepage on the left, you'll see the National Strategy for Fusion Centers. And, yeah, you know, people can read that at their leisure. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for your time. Finally, this month's member spotlight is on Kevin Doss, CPP, who is CEO of Level 4 Security. He tells us more about his involvement in ASIS International and the security industry as a whole. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, and I hope that I offer some good advice. Tell us more about your involvement with ASIS International and how long you've been a member. Well, I've been a member for uh, well over a decade. I came upon it through a client mine. I uh, happened to be sitting in my client's office and saw his certification certificate up on the wall, and, and we got discussing it. And I probably had about 10 years in the industry at that time. And, and the more he talked about the certification process through AFIS International, the more I became interested. And so I was in the very first class of the PSP exam in 2003 in Washington, D.C. I had studied for the PSP and in 2003 became certified, uh, which was quite enlightening to me. And after 13 years in the industry at that point, it exposed a lot of gaps in my personal learning and understanding of the security industry as a whole, which sort of put me on a lifelong learning cycle. I went on for my CPP in 2005, and then I went on for my master's in security and risk management from the University of Leicester, Leicester, England. In 2009, I completed that program. So ASIS International has been an integral part in my career path in security probably for the last 15 years. And I am the uh, PSP Board Certification Review Course Advisor for ASIS International. So I teach on the the PSP certification, and I also help out on the CTP certification when when needed. You are CEO of Level 4 Security. What services does your company provide? At Level 4 Security, you know, we've been in business now for seven years. We're going on our eighth year, and a few of the things that we really focus on are active shooters and workplace violence. We focus on building security strategy, building policies and procedures, or reviewing them and updating them for our clients. We do a lot of professional security training. You know, one of the things I'm probably most proud of, I was involved in a risk, threat, and vulnerability assessment of the Panama Canal, the entire 51-mile Panama Canal zone, which is approximately 80% of the country's infrastructure in Panama. The several-month process was a very involved project and really, you know, helped me grow as a professional. I do a lot of work for different government agencies, doing assessments, doing training, things of that nature for them. So what are some of the trends you're seeing in the industry as far as active shooter training? I think, as we all can see, based on the media coverage, that active shooter trends are rising, and there are more and more active shooter incidents across our nation and really across the world when you start looking at it. So we know the statistics show us that the problem is increasing, and the challenge is how do we detect and prevent an active shooting from occurring. And that comes down to a couple of different things. And some of the studying I've done, I wrote a book on active shooters called Active Shooter, Preparing for and Responding to a Growing Threat. And in the book, we tried to look at pre-attack behaviors and how, how would we profile a shooter. And there's no easy way to do that. Even with all the knowledge we have in the aftermath of these incidents, there's no real way that we can determine that. So a couple of things that we try to do is we try to look at, can we profile 
you know, who may become an active shooter, and then what are their personality traits? Are there certain traits that are more indicative to make someone an active shooter or have them act out and choose a weapon as their method of speaking? Now, just off the top of my head, a couple of things would be people who have poor relationships with others. Uh, I know that can be a lot of people, and you're going to find as I go through some of these traits that many of us, uh, including myself, may have some of these traits, and it doesn't mean we're going to act out in violence. But, you know, a couple of things I'm thinking, people who lack empathy or they have a sense of entitlement, low self-esteem, people who struggle with self-esteem, or anybody who has a a strong or high uh, fascination with violence, people who dehumanize others, are narcissistic in tendencies, depressed, angry, or they can even be mentally ill in some cases. Some of those behaviors might be indicators for active shooters. But it's not a perfect science, and it's difficult because millions of people have some of these traits. And we don't have that many active shooters out there. So what we're trying to figure out is what triggers that active shooter, the the people who have some of these personality traits, what triggers them, and and how can we profile these individuals to make sure. And I can't tell you there's one specific answer right now because there's not. You know, a couple of the indicators that I, I can tell you, people observe major changes. So someone in the office or at school has an observable change in their behaviors, maybe in their appearance, maybe in the way they're talking about things, verbal threats, written threats, or if they're planning an attack, or or just some of their thoughts are very disturbing. Those might all be ways we can help profile or or have indicators of a potential shooting. Mental illness is part of it, but sometimes just a life-changing event, such as loss of a job, a divorce, or a breakup in a relationship, those can all be triggers as well. But when we look at all these, you know, aspects of profiling, it's very, very difficult because we all know of people in our lives who go through a divorce or might be struggling with alcoholism, and it doesn't mean they're going to become a shooter. So to go back to your question, some of the trends that we see in trying to prevent this is how can we identify, how can we educate the general population when they see these indicators to do something about it, to have some type of interaction or some type of prevention strategy to go in and maybe intervene and not allow it to get to the point where they they actually plan out the attack and and choose a weapon and go attack, whether it's a school, whether it's a church, whether it's in our place of business. Those are all things we're trying to determine and trying to get that awareness out there to the general population. Um, You know, as far as trends, what I can tell you on trends is we're seeing the majority of shootings happening in places of business or commerce. And when, when you consider that, I mean, that's an important thing for most businesses out there. A recent FBI report, when they were considering places where these acts have taken place, almost 46% took place in a place of commerce, and about 24% took place in schools or school systems. So between those two, you almost have 75% of all the attacks happening in a place of business or a school setting. When you look at it from that perspective, it means that our businesses and our schools need to consider this a serious threat, and they need to put plans in place. They need to perform vulnerability and risk assessments on their sites. They need to train and drill their personnel what to do if an active shooter comes to the facility, how to react, where to go, and the different individual actions that those individuals may have to choose to do when faced with a gunman. Kevin, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Holly. And if anyone needs further information or wants to reach out and contact me or my company, the website is www.level4security.com. That's L-E-V-E-L, the number four, security.com. Thank you. 
That does it for this month's podcast. Be sure to check us out on iTunes and SoundCloud and check back throughout the month for an extended version of our Member Spotlight interview. Until next time, I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell. Bye-bye.